Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Charlie McCain. He's the chairman of the board and chief executive officer of Harbor Capital Advisors, which is a money management firm that offers both exchange-traded funds and mutual funds. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Charlie. Thank you, Jordan. It's a pleasure to be here. Really excited to be a guest. Just give us a little bit of your background leading to where you are today. Sure. Happy to do that. So I've had the privilege of being associated with Harbor Capital, and I'm surprised myself when I say this, for over a quarter century. Um, I I came up on the legal side. So in 1996, Jordan, I was a first-year law associate assigned to a client then called Harbor Funds, and it was a small mutual fund company based in Toledo, Ohio, of all places. And they had always done something I thought unique for the time, which is they identified talented asset managers from around the globe, brought those to the U.S. market, some in the U.S., some outside the U.S., and structured them as as individual mutual funds. And that was built on the history of Harbor as the pension and analytics department for a glass bottle manufacturer based in Toledo, Ohio. And going back even 30 years before they launched, we launched our first mutual funds, they had always focused on that approach of identifying talent from around the globe because in Toledo, Ohio, there are many, many talented folks, but not as many investment professionals. So that was the focus. And I left the law firm in Boston in the mid 2000s, uh, came to Harbor, uh, over over time, took on some lead operational roles and <clears throat> succeeded our longtime CEO in 2017. Now, Harbor is no longer based in Toledo. Our, our headquarters are in Chicago, Illinois, but our focus remains the same of identifying talented asset class specialist investment managers from around the globe and bringing them to market in a cost competitive way and providing very good service to our clients. So let's kind of take a broad view of the economy. We're going to get into the details of the specific kind of funds you offer and so on, but let's let's start with a broad view of the economy here. So the Federal Reserve's been raising interest rates all year. Uh, it's been kind of a rough year for the markets. Uh, commodity prices had gone up a lot, and then they've come down to some extent. They've been falling today, actually. Yes. Oil's into the high 70s because of the disruption in China. China. Where, where yeah. do you kind of summarize where the economy is in the world uh, right now from an investment perspective? Boy, that's a great question. I don't know. That's the billion dollar, uh, trillion dollar question, but a really good one. One thing that is clear to us is that the, the past economic dynamics have changed significantly. What do I mean by that? Um, We have had Jordan, as you know, being in this business for a long time, a multi-decade long run of globalization, uh, falling interest rates, uh, easier money, uh, uh, technological advances, all of which have led to very strong equity and fixed income market returns. And that was was centered around a traditional 60-40 balanced portfolio equities and fixed income investments. And that, that generally had done quite well over that period of time. Fast forward to 2022, and that traditional 60-40 equity fixed income portfolio has had its worst performance year since 1931. 
And it's the only time in history where both equities and fixed income markets are both down over 10%. So you're right to say it is a, it is a changed environment. And so what do we look at and what do we think going forward? Um, well, interest rates have gone up and I think they're going to continue to go up given the challenges around inflation and the emphasis on bringing inflation down by reducing spending and, cur- and curtailing business activity. So that seems to be, seems to be uh, here to stay. Um, the globalization trend has turned to deglobalization, where folks are going to, and co- countries are going to focus on building and producing more locally. Obviously, there are benefits to that uh, in the local economy, but broadly, that means uh, prices for goods and services are likely to go up uh, because you can't go around the globe and find the, the, the most economical manufacturer of that. And, and as a result, I think we're going to see much greater volatility going forward in a dynamic where everything isn't just going up, equities and fixed income. And therefore, that's going to require some different thinking from an investment perspective. On the Federal Reserve, they've raised rates uh, several times this year. Do you think they're going to continue to raise rates? There's a lot of speculation that they're either going to slow down the rate of increases or potentially stop raising rates sometime in mid-2023. What is your expectation from the Federal Reserve? Another great question. Our view is that they're going to continue to raise rates into early 2023, uh, at which point they're likely to pause. And we could see rates beginning to come down later in 2023. I think the markets, uh, in terms of forward pricing of the 10-year and the like, are expecting rates then to begin to come down. Uh, but one thing is clear to us is that the Federal Reserve is committed to breaking the back of inflation. And so I think we, on the investment side, have often been surprised that the <clears throat> the size and the, and the frequency of the rating increases because we're hoping that, well, inflation may peak. But I think the data is not suggesting that fully yet, Jordan. And I think the Fed has a resolve to break it before it becomes uh, too difficult to tame. So you think that there's no amount of pain that they could be putting on as far as higher unemployment or really hurting the housing market or falling commodity prices or all these kind of painful things that will dissuade the Fed from keep raising rating, keep, keeping its rate, rate rising strategy? Unfortunately, I, I do think that's the case. Um, boy, and it's hard because obviously the political pressure that would come from some of those more dire circumstances, uh, increased joblessness, um, continued pressure on um, you know economic ability uh, to you know, meet our daily needs from a from a household perspective, rising energy prices, those are going to be real challenges. But I, I, I do believe, we believe that the Fed feels that the damage longer term to the economy, to households and job creation, which would be much higher if it can't get inflation under control sooner. So I, I, we do believe that they are committed and will raise rates 
and continue to do so until they have clearer signs that inflation has peaked. Uh, and those are, and I don't think we, I think they might slow a bit of the rate height, the rate increases now um, while they're watching for the data to come in. But I think they'd want to see a significant indication from the data that um, inflation is trending down before they would stop uh, rate, rate increases. And you're thinking they're doing the right thing. You are approving of what the Fed is doing here. <laughs> uh, yes, unfortunately, yes. I think the challenge to the economy from inflation that is um, untamable would be greater than the shorter term pain of getting that under control. Yes. What we hope for, and I think where our view, Jordan, is maybe there's a a 25 or 33 a third uh, chance that the Fed will strike the balance between raising rates enough to cool the economy and achieve that uh, mythical ideal soft landing, which would mean rates would not have to go too much higher. Uh, the economy would stabilize and rates could begin to come down and job losses would be uh, limited. Uh, that would be really our, my ideal outcome. Um, difficult to know if that's uh, what, will, what will happen, a little bit like landing the, the plane in a storm on an aircraft carrier. It's possible, but difficult. Yeah. So let's just go back to the sources of inflation. Some are saying it was a cyclical situation where you had um, the pandemic kind of closing everything down. Uh, so supply went way down, then demand was way down, but then demand came back much quicker than supply did, and that's what was the immediate cause of the inflation. Some would say it was because the Fed was pumping so much money into the economy for so long, and the fiscal stimulus was the, so it was kind of a monetary phenomenon. What, what do you think is the main cause for the inflation we're seeing today? Uh, hard to disentangle, but I, we would we would say uh, the the bigger cause is, is the uh, monetary expansion, the easy money policies around the globe uh, that have been um, that have been uh, unlike anything that's been done. We can have evidence uh, from past history. Um, and so I think that to us is the most significant cause of inflation is uh, all of the, the money that's been pumped into the U.S. economy and around the globe, um, starting with the uh, coming out of the global financial crisis in, in 2009, uh, interest rates that have been held particularly low throughout a decade plus after that uh, to ensure that uh, growth continued coming out of the global financial crisis, and obviously the pandemic, which which is a, a dramatic event for everyone, um, significant stimulus on top of what was done for the global financial crisis to come out of that. Uh, it, it, that, uh, to us, is really uh, the, the primary driver, um, because some of the other trends around the globe, the, the globalization trend, um, you know, that works to reduce um, the cost of production. And while the pandemic has affected that in the short term, 
you know, I'm not sure that in some of the supply chain disruptions that that has the as big a cause as the long term trend with uh, the easy money policies. Yes, very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Charlie McCain. He's the chairman of the board and chief executive officer of Harbor Capital Advisors based in Chicago. Uh, they have a series of mutual funds and exchange-traded funds we're going to be talking about in more detail. You can find out about what they have to offer at their website, harborcapital.com. We'll be back after this. Nobody likes the guy who says, I told you so. The guy in 1991 who said to you, invest in the Internet. It's going to be huge. Or the guy in 1997 who said, come on, this is going to be big. They call it social media. And the guy in 2009 who said, I'm telling you, man, crypto is real. Now, I'm not going to be that guy who says, I told you so. But I am telling you that there is a 21-year-old international company where you can become a global project partner, earning a passive income doing exactly what you're doing at this moment. No selling, no recruiting clients, no administering a business after hours. Visit www.mypassiveincome.life now. That's mypassiveincome.life. Don't let history repeat itself on this one. Earn a passive income. Now listen again. That's mypassiveincome.life. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Charlie McCain. He's the chairman of the board and chief executive officer at Harbor Capital Advisors based in Chicago. They offer mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. You can find out more at his website, harborcapital.com. Welcome back to the show, Charlie. Thank you, Jordan. So people are used to mutual funds. They've been around for decades. Uh, but most recently, exchange-traded funds have come along and taken away a lot of market share. What are the pros and cons of investing in a mutual fund versus an exchange-traded fund, since you have, one of, you have some of each? Sure, and we may be probably well-equipped to answer this question. Um, our history has been as a mutual fund sponsor. So for since 1986, we launched our first series of harbor funds, uh, all active open-end mutual funds. And then last year, we launched our first series of active exchange-traded funds, ETFs. And we now have 11 active ETFs, and we have 19 mutual funds. So uh, we have experience in both camps. And so why have we launched a series of ETFs? Well, one thing we have seen uh, and witnessed 
uh, from the ETF perspective is they offer, for some investors, significant advantages over mutual funds. And, and ultimately, our goal is to serve clients the best way we can. And that doesn't have to be in a mutual fund. It can be in an ETF. It can be through model delivery. And, and why, is, why is an ETF potentially better for some investors, particularly taxable investors? A couple things. First, um, ETFs are only one share class products. So on the mutual fund side, there can often be an alphabet soup of, of share classes. On our mutual fund side, we offer four share classes. ETFs are one. There's no confusion. And generally, they are equate to the lowest cost share class of the mutual fund or sometimes slightly less because there's no internal transfer agent or distribution dynamics within an ETF as there can be within a mutual fund, thus having multiple share class and different pricing there. A second, um, they are typically transparent. So our active ETFs are transparent. So investors can see almost in a real-time basis what they're holding, um, what the exposures are. Um, in a mutual fund case, generally those exposures are available after quarter end or top 10 after month end. And, and third, and this may be most significant from, again, a taxable investor perspective, ETFs uh, relative to a comparable mutual fund can be much more tax efficient. And the reason why they can be more tax efficient, Jordan, is the way investors purchase and sell shares to and from the ETF versus the mutual fund. In the mutual fund case, people buy and sell directly with the mutual fund. And so that means cash goes in, the portfolio manager purchases the securities when they're redemption, the cash, the portfolio manager can will redeem the securities within the portfolio and then send the, the proceeds, the cash back to the shareholder. On the ETF side, what typically happens is market makers will contribute securities in kind to the ETF. And when there's a big redemption, the ETF sponsor will contribute securities, distribute securities back out to a market maker who then liquidates those securities outside of the ETF structure. So the ETF doesn't need to realize gains and losses, typically, to the extent that mutual funds do. So they can be more tax advantaged from a taxable investor perspective. ETFs are still more difficult to hold in a retirement plan structure like a traditional 401k plan. That's where mutual funds still remain much more prominent than exchange-traded funds, if that's helpful, Jordan. So you're saying that the fund flows with a mutual fund where it gets hot, tons of investors pour money in, the investor, the manager has to buy with all those new funds, and then it gets cold and it goes out and have all these outflows and he has to sell. That's something that doesn't affect ETFs as much as it does mutual funds. Is that correct? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Because those stocks are contributed in or distributed out. And with that distrib distribution out, for example, the tax gains or losses of that particular security are then passed through out of the portfolio and not realized inside the ETF portfolio. Yes. Now, you have some specific, you've actually launched recently some specific uh, ETFs. One of them is related to energy. You think that the transition to alternative energy is a major investment theme. 
Tell us about that offering and why you think that's an important place for people to put their money. Oh, absolutely. Um, so we had, we've launched uh, two commodity-related ETFs. The one that you're referring to is the Harbor Energy Transition Strategy ETF. The ticker is Renew, R-E-N-W. And this is based on the theme. And I think one of the things, Jordan, that we see more so in the ETF space and the ecosystem of, of, of buyers around ETFs is a higher demand or preference for thematic exposures, which is a little bit more distinctive than what has traditionally existed in the mutual fund space, which, which are style box specific exposures like large cap growth and value, mid cap growth and value, international growth and value, for example. Not that those don't exist in the ETFs or that thematics don't exist in mutual funds, but thematics seem to be much more prominent and popular and interesting in the ETF space. So a number of our products represent that thematic exposure. And so Renew. Renew is a partnership we have with a sub-advisor called Quantix Commodities, and that's one of the firms in our history, our DNA, whether it be in the mutual funds or ETF structure, where we identify talent from around the globe. In this case, uh, the, the founders of Quantix had run the Goldman Sachs Commodity Desk for roughly two decades and left to launch their own firm in 2018, seeing this really trends that were taking place in the industry around commodities, which I'll come back to. The specific one in this case is this trend around the energy transition globally from a carbon-based, petroleum-based energy structure and system and ecosystem to one that is driven by largely renewable energy sources. So wind, hydro, natural gas, to some degree, uh, those, uh, it's solar, that transition uh, is going to take place over decades. Uh, A number of the aspects of that transition, of course, are taking place today. So one of the one of the most prominent examples, Jordan, is in the transition from internal combustion engine cars to electric vehicles. And that's both a uh, a dynamic that is driven by uh, desire to reduce emissions exposure. But it's also there's also a regulatory drive. So when you have uh, states like California, which are mandating uh, only electric vehicle sales in, say, 2035, and many European countries are doing that, you have an accelerant to some aspects of that trend. So a car, uh, an electric vehicle, uh, will require eight times the amount of copper, primarily in the battery structure, than an internal combustion engine car. And so if we envision that today, electric vehicles make up something like three to 5% of new car sales in the United States. And if that's going to have to go to, if we take California, for example, to 100% of all car sales uh, in 20 years, maybe less, the amount of copper consumed, as well as a number of other metals that are more unique to the battery structure of a car, the demand for those are going to be significant. And right now, the production and the supply of that 
is not sufficient to meet the demand. So that's and, the largest demand for commodities, you're so, saying. Because, I mean, lately, in, the last, in this year, most commodity prices have been falling pretty sharply because of less demand. Um, oil was at you know, 120 and now it's 77. Yeah. And look at copper yeah. and lumber and soybeans and all kinds of things. I mean, in the, the medium term, commodity prices have been been falling pretty sharply here as a kind of a disinflationary move. You're saying that's going to reverse and commodity prices will start going up again. The, the short answer to your question is yes. Um, so commodity prices probably more so than most other asset classes um, have a significant spot or current dynamic that affects their pricing. So the immediacy of supply and demand will affect their pricing. And some of the challenges in the short term, obviously the pandemic, supply chain disruptions, the news, as you referenced, about China, where they're continuing to struggle with COVID and, and reopening and how, how much that's going to depress their demand in the near term. All of that certainly has a great impact on commodity prices today. Yeah. But when so, you look... Sorry, I mean, you, you, I understand the long-term view towards the energy transition. In the short term, these areas, solar, wind, geothermal, have, have not been particularly rewarding investment opportunities. I mean, these stocks have really performed badly, and a lot of these places have been uh, taken over by China, basically. It's able to produce at much lower cost, like the U.S. solar industry has not done well. So is, is that part Absolutely. of the, that, the yeah. risk you have to take in going into this, these areas? A great question. So uh, you're right about the the end business. So uh, there's been some challenges with the valuations and the, the, the investment results of these clean energy businesses, for sure. I think some of it has to do with technology that has not matched the hype associated with what they can deliver, combined with competition from the traditional sources of energy, the carbon-based sources. What, what, what we believe, however, is that th whether it's a solar company producing solar panels in China at, at a lower cost than they could be produced in Iowa, for example, the demand for some of the precious metals that will need to go into that production and what we see is that um, that the regulatory landscape in many countries is going to drive demand. And that's combined with the fact that there's been such an underinvestment in commodity production for two decades. So if you were going to bring uh, Jordan on a new um, copper mine, that's a... 10-year process, multi-billion dollar investment, if we started that today, that's a 20, 30 something, the supply coming online. We just don't have much more supply for many of these commodities. Yeah. And I, we, we see the demand increasing. So you're right. On the short term, there's, there's volatility associated with the pricing of these commodities broadly. But over the medium term, and I'm not talking about 20 years out, over the medium term, we see continued demand. 
Plus, Jordan, I would also stress that we would never recommend one of your investors and listeners devote a substantial amount of their portfolio to commodities. What we would say is that as different as the economic environment is going to be going forward than it was over the past 20 years where the balanced 60-40 portfolio worked and worked well, we, we think that there needs to be a different approach going forward from a diversification perspective. And commodities, done thoughtfully and prudently, can provide diversification going forward, both from an inflation perspective and from a an uncorrelated asset class return perspective that would be helpful to portfolios, even if in shorter uh, periods there can be greater volatility balanced across a broader portfolio, we think that would add long-term value. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Charlie McCain, Chairman of the Board and CEO of Harbor Capital Advisors. They offer both mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. You can find out more at their website, harborcapital.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Charlie McCain, Chairman of the Board and CEO of Harbor Capital Advisors, which offers both mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. Welcome back to the show, Charlie. Thank you, Jordan. So let's talk about domestic versus international. You have quite a few international funds. You have a diversified international all-cap fund, an international fund, an overseas fund, quite a few international funds. And then you've got a whole bunch of domestic funds, uh, value funds, mid-cap value funds. 
in, in allocating your portfolio, how should you decide how much should be overseas and how much should be domestic in the current economic environment we're in right now? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. And historically, Jordan, there, there's been a, a, a theory about or a strategy about allocating your assets that, that are into equities to align to broadly the, the gross domestic product proportions of the U.S. versus international markets. And that, that would generally have led to a, uh, let's say, a 60% U.S. and 40% non-U.S. exposure, something like that. And I, I think probably fewer investors generally have gone that high on the non-U.S. And actually, that, that's worked quite well because the U.S. has been the stalwart of the economic boom of the rising tide lifting all boats over the last two decades. So, so that, that was a good place to be. Um, we think now that uh, leaning back towards that, that historical strategy split with respect to equities makes sense because um, international markets have generally performed less well than U.S. markets. And so there's greater value in those, um, thoughtfully selected. And then second, the U.S. dollar has been so strong. And obviously, um, international stocks denominated in foreign currencies, you have the impact of the translation of that currency into U.S. dollars. And that's been a headwind as well for international uh, security. So, so looking ahead, I think, Having a good balance between domestic and international stocks would make sense uh, going forward, um, is our view. So what you're saying is you think what, what's been happening is going to change. The dollar is not going to stay as strong as it has been. It might come down to some extent, and that the underperformance of international is, is going to be re returned by overperformance compared to the U.S. market. Is that what you're saying? Yes, and, and maybe just to, just to tweak that a, a little bit on terms of the dollar strength, maybe it's more of the view that the dollar may not strengthen much more, maybe flat, maybe it gives up a little bit. But now that what has been a stiff headwind for international exposure is now at, at maybe at best neutral. And so then you can focus on the different valuation dynamics in markets. So emerging market equities, for example, have been particularly hard hit um, in in the past several years. That's a, a potential value-oriented area for exposure. Um, again, I, we think the value differential is is greater than it has been in the past decade, for example, between international and domestic. And so you would never want to go all in one or the other because it can take time for that to realize I, you know, for, for Jordan, for the last 10 plus years, um, it's been the growth versus value debate on the domestic side and growth that outperformed value year after year after year, plus or minus. And um, there are almost some folks who threw in the towel on value. Um, but this year in particular, value has been strong. Growth has been weaker.
for understandable yep. reasons, rising interest rates. And so, so I think, again, the long-term views on exposures remains important, but, but balanced a bit with the current market conditions and views on relative values over time, I think is also prudent to take into account. So what are the investment implications of the major story of this year, which is the Russian invasion of Ukraine and all that has done to destabilize the food markets and the fuel markets and political strategies? It's had a major impact on all kinds of things. What are the investment implications of the Russian invasion of Ukraine? It's a great question. And, you know, one of the things that we hear from our stable of managers around the globe. So we have managers based in London and Edinburgh and across the United States. These are the, these are the institutional firms we partner with on the equity, growth value, fixed income side, commodities, um, as I referenced. And I'd say the common thought these managers have around the Russia-Ukraine dynamic is it's a terrible humanitarian crisis. It's, it's awful to see unfold. But the implications from an investment perspective, if, particularly if you have a medium, a longer-term view, their view, and we would share that, that collective view, is has limited impact. And there are bigger questions around things like China and its reopening and that demand that comes from that, for example, the inflation question that we talked about at the beginning of the show and to what extent or how deep a recession in the United States will be. There may be some slight impact from how the Russia-Ukraine dynamic unfolds. And, and for sure, I hope that that could resolve to save lives, but we don't view that as a significant driver of, of, of stock or bond or commodity returns going forward. So it hasn't made Europe, for example, a less attractive place to invest long-term because of the strains, energy and other strains on the European system. It, it, it has not affected it in that way you're saying. Uh, it, it, it has it, good question. It's affected it from the perspective of uh, Europe now presents greater value. Um, it, it, from an energy perspective, it is hit hardest, right, from the Russia-Ukraine dynamic. And so that might have beaten down the valuations of European issuers more so than other parts of the globe. Their ability to come out of that and to perform over time may be similar to what's happening in Europe and Asia, irrespective of Russia or Ukraine, but their valuation base is starting a bit lower, is yeah. what I mean. I'd like, to, I'd like to ask you about cryptocurrencies. We've had this major collapse recently of FTX exchange. Uh, yes. Bitcoin got up to 65000 a year ago. Now it's 16000 A lot of people have lost a lot of money. What do you think investors should make of cryptocurrency? Is it something that you dabble in or, or offer in one way or the other? Uh, that's a great question. Um, we, we do not. And certainly as this was rising in popular culture and, and attention, 
we as a firm looked carefully at it, thought about could we, should we offer a product in this space, um, and we, we chose not to, um, not because we're, we're, we've got a crystal ball. There are aspects of it that, <clears throat> that belie traditional measures of valuation. And so um, it was hard for us to think about this as a medium or long-term investment opportunity in our, through, our, through our lens. Maybe our traditional lens is we're, we're, we're missing the boat from the new generation. But it was hard for us to see how you would develop good valuation characteristics around uh, cryptocurrency and certainly some of the decentralized finance dynamics that are associated with that, that depending on who you talk to, they're, they're related, but they're not necessarily tied together. There are opportunities there for sure over time. Um, but, but without a valuation, without an asset, unlike commodities, there's no intrinsic value. So that's maybe closest to gold. Um, but, but, but not so in the sense that there's a fixed supply of gold and there could be I guess in any number of digital currencies created today, tomorrow, or in the future. So it's, 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 it's different in that regard. So we, we haven't, um, certainly prices have come down significantly, um, on cryptocurrency, but I think that's more a reflection of in the turnover in the markets from easy money, very low interest rates, um, opportunity to speculate because the cost of quote unquote money and investing was low. Now it's higher. Interest rates, as you noted, have gone up. Uh, economic conditions have weakened. I think the, the willingness of folks then to bet on aspects of that is it, it's going to be harder. And so I think if you have a trading mindset, Jordan, if, and there are many firms out there that, have done very well as firms that trade in and out of market inefficiencies, the cryptocurrency could certainly serve as a market for that kind of strategy. We just don't offer those kind of products. Yeah, very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Charlie McCain, chairman of the board and CEO of Harbor Capital Advisors. They offer both mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. You can find out more at their website, harborcapital.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth in Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth in Equity's program. 
There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Charlie McCain, chairman of the board and CEO at Harbor Capital Advisors based in Chicago. They offer both mutual funds and exchange-traded funds on a wide variety of topics. You can find out more at their website, harborcapital.com. Welcome back to the show, Charlie. Thank you, Jordan. So you've launched some funds recently with the whole idea of corporate culture and making uh, investing in companies that have positive corporate culture. Tell us a little, a little bit about those funds. Sure. Uh, those are um, a series of funds that we're really proud uh, to offer uh, because as a as a business leader myself, um, and really in any business dynamic, we often talk about our people being our most important asset. No, no question about it. I believe that wholeheartedly. And so how do we quantify the energy, the engagement of people at a company? When you think about, Jordan, the delta between the difference between an employee who's doing just enough to maintain their job and an employee who's really engaged, excited, super enthusiastic in what they do in the same job and the delta and the difference. And imagine you multiply that across most of the employee base of a company. I, I think that would be a dramatic lift relative to others. So how do you, how do you assess that? That's really hard. And Again, as a firm, our focus is to identify unique, innovative talent, investment management talent from around the globe. And in this case, we identified a firm called Irrational Capital. One of the founders is a behavioral economist uh, by the name of Dan Ariely, who uh, is prominent in that space. He's a professor at Duke University. And Irrational Capital had developed a way quantify, in their view, in our view, well, the degree of human capital advantage that a company has. And so how do they do that? And and so they do that through a range of data sources, proprietary and public. So the public data, Jordan, would be things like Glassdoor and other sources where you can can identify uh, the employee's feelings with respect to a company. But then the private data relates to um, sources of survey data. So firms like Harbor Capital Advisors participate in the top workplace survey and how do we do and please that we we have been named a top workplace. But they pull in the data uh, from thousands of companies in the United States and then they score them on a relative basis, which is important. And so does one company have a relatively um, fairer pay structure from an employee perspective 
not the company perspective. How does the employee feel about their role, their engagement? And they, and they distill that into data and they compare it across companies. And they've created a portfolio that we offer in two forms. Um, the Harbor Corporate Culture Leaders ETF with the ticker HAPPY, H-A-P-Y, and the Harbor Corporate Culture ETF with the ticker HAPI, H-A-P-I. The difference between those two, Jordan, is HAPPY is a unconstrained uh, version of the corporate culture. So it's fewer securities, not constrained by asset class or size, whereas HAPI, with an I, is tied to the S&P 500, and it's designed to pull securities just from that pool of 500 uh, companies and identify the 125 or so that have the highest corporate culture scores and so to bring been those to time the public. That, that has, it, has it proven out, in fact, that the companies that have the so-called happiest or best corporate culture provide the best investment returns as well? Uh, from a from a how have we done to date? Uh, we launched these um, early in 2022. The answer is uh, they've done better than their representative benchmarks. Um, but you know that that's going to be a longer term dynamic to see. Um, and so we we believe that's going to prove to be the case, Jordan. Um, but but hopefully over time we'll be able to demonstrate that with more data. And it's something, I mean, it's, boy, it's something that from the research and the data that we've been able to work with in bringing these products to market and supporting them, there are insights that I, as a leader for Harbor Capital, have put in place to help promote our engagement across our employee base. So so I, I can't fully say we've got a 10-year history to demonstrate that statistically, but but I believe there's value there. It's, I, I believe it's important. Related to that is the whole movement towards ESG, environmental, social, and governance. Yeah. Uh, are you a big believer in ESG, and is that a part of what you use to evaluate companies to invest in? It's a, uh, it's a great question. Boy, that's, that's, a, uh, that's, a, that's a challenging question because ESG takes so many forms and so many definitions. So, for example, our corporate culture series, Happy and Happy, we would also view those as um, as S, the social component of ESG. And, and for those investors who also find that valuable, this these may be products that fit those needs. More broadly, to answer your question more broadly, we do believe that there is a trend for investors, millennials, the younger generation that that desire greater impact with their investment dollars. That doesn't mean older folks like me don't either, but there's definitely a stronger trend. And as they allocate more of their capital to those businesses or industries, I think there will be broader ramifications for return profiles, uh, as well as avoiding risk areas associated with companies that effectively blow up because the governance aspects or their environmental aspects weren't carefully considered. So to answer your question more succinctly, 
we think that that is becoming an inherent part of the investment calculus that good investment managers apply to their companies to seek to generate the best return pattern and profile going forward. Do we as a firm solely offer an ESG as the mandate? No. Um, and, and certainly many firms do, and, and, and that's great if that's, your, if that's what you're seeking. We, our offerings seek to incorporate that into components of the investment thesis to, to identify the better portfolios to build over time. Yeah. As the show comes to a close pretty soon here, why don't you kind of summarize the risks and opportunities available in the investment markets today and how Harbor Capital can help people uh, take advantage of the opportunities? Sure. Great question. Well, one of the things that we really try to do, and it's in our mission statement, Jordan, is to inspire and empower people to invest better to achieve the financial security they deserve. And inspiring doesn't mean uh, short-term or buy something that's hot. It means dig in and and be intrigued by a product, uh, be enthusiastic about what it's striving to do and what it could achieve over time. Because if we can get folks to to be excited about their investment portfolios, I hope they'll save more and they'll save more consistently because saving more consistently and doing that in a diversified approach over time is the most important way to achieve strong financial outcomes over time. So, so I'm hoping that we have created a suite of ETFs that are active that will serve many of those inspiring and empowering dynamics from an investor base. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Charlie McCain. He's the chairman of the board and chief executive officer of Harbor Capital Advisors based in Chicago. Uh, you can find out more at his website, harborcapital.com. As he discussed, they have many different exchange-traded funds and mutual funds uh, meeting different kinds of objectives uh, that you might want to take a look at. So thanks so much for being a great guest on The Money Answer Show, Charlie. Thank you very much for having me, Jordan. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.